I'd like to invite you to turn with me in God's Word this evening to the book of 1 Corinthians. The book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll be looking at the Apostle Paul's teaching from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Our sermon text this evening will begin in verse 18 through the end of the chapter, uh, but I'd like to begin our reading at verse 10. Beginning our reading at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, reading all the way through chapter 2, verse 5, from the book of 1 Corinthians. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word under the heading of foolishness and weakness from 1 Corinthians beginning in verse 10. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And what I mean is that each of you, each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name, although I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, and it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest on the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So ends the reading of God's holy word. Then we'll turn, secondly, to our Heidelberg Catechism this evening. Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 25. Lord's Day 25, which can be found on the Forms and Prayer Book at page 226 and in the back of your hymnal at page 1131. Lord's Day 25. We'll together read the answers. But first, the question beginning Lord's Day 25 with question 65. It is by faith alone that we share in Christ and all His benefits. Where then does that faith come from? The Holy Spirit works it in our hearts by the preaching of the Holy Gospel and confirms it by the use of the Holy Sacraments. What are sacraments? Sacraments are visible holy signs and seals. They were instituted by God so that by our use of them, He might make us understand more clearly the promise of the Gospel and seal that promise. And this is God's Gospel promise. He grants us forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace because of Christ's one sacrifice accomplished on the cross. Are both the Word and sacraments then intended to focus our faith on the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross as the only ground of our salvation? Yes, indeed. The Holy Spirit teaches us in the Gospel and confirms by the use of the Holy Sacraments that our entire salvation rests on Christ's one sacrifice for us on the cross. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two, holy baptism and the Lord's Supper. My most dear friends, if you were to gather some of the brightest minds in this world, some businessmen and political consultants who had gone maybe to the best schools and worked for the best companies and saw great success, and you were to tell them, my long-term goal is to be influential and famous. And centuries from now, I want civilizations built upon my teachings. I want millions of people to reflect on what I said, and to be the center of their lives, and you were to ask them, how do I accomplish this? What do you think they would say? Would it be anything like the life of the Lord Jesus Christ? Who was born in obscurity. 
Jesus who avoided any power or political alliances on earth. Jesus who never published a book or worked in the academy. What would they say? Of course, they would not recommend we live a life like Christ. But that's exactly what Jesus did to become the most influential person in human history. He makes foolish the wisdom of the world. And throughout the Bible history, if you know your Bible, you know that God has always used weak things in order to showcase His power. In every generation, God has worked with men and women. He has worked with families and nations that no one else wanted. He actually seems to locate the weak and the unwanted. And in their failures, in their helplessness, and in their sufferings, God brings about salvation. This is no better seen than in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who not in His demonstrations of His power saved sinners, but when He was condemned, when He was tortured, when He was executed, God brought about salvation. In other words, what I'm trying to communicate to you is that God takes what appears to our human eyes as foolish and weak. And He brings about divine salvation. And there may be nothing more foolish. Nothing more weak to the eyes of this world than the church of Jesus Christ. The word of the cross, Paul says, is folly. That to the world, to non-Christians, the thought of going to church, to the listening of the word declared and read, sprinkling water on our heads, taking a little piece of bread and a little sip of wine and giving our lives to God. It's foolish. It's nonsensical. Have you ever experienced this? Or heard criticisms of friends and family members who say, all that church stuff, it's it's just foolishness. It's just nonsense. Have you heard this? And isn't it interesting this evening that Paul says, it is foolish. It is weak. Apart from the Spirit of God. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of salvation. That when God takes something that is to the world foolishness and weakness, and He applies His divine Holy Spirit to it, 
It is the power of God unto salvation. Lord's Day 25 in our Heidelberg Catechism, although there's no title here, is going to be addressing the subject of the church. The ministry of the church, really. If you look at uh, Lord's Day 25, it's going to be talking about principally the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. And then all the way to Lord's Day 31, it's going to continue to address the subject. Lord's Days 26 and 27 are about the subject of baptism. Lord's Days 27, or excuse me, 28, 29, and 30 will be about the Lord's Supper. And Lord's Day 31 is about what we call the keys of the kingdom. This is what the world says is foolish. This is what the world says is weak. But the church, we will read, we will come to know, is not a country club. Nor is it a welfare program. But the church is the God-ordained place where He reveals Himself. The church is the God-ordained place where He reveals Himself. Our theme for our time together this evening is that the Holy Spirit takes foolish and weak things to unite our hearts more to Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes foolish and weak things to unite our hearts more to Jesus. I want to show you this in three points. The giver of faith, the focus of faith, and the signs of faith. That's the giver, the focus, and the signs of faith. And so we turn this morning again to that first chapter in the book of 1 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul is pointing back to his first visit to the city of Corinth. His first visit is recorded in Acts chapter 18 when he was on his second missionary journey where he came to this highly cultured, this wealthy, this prosperous city of Corinth. And he preached the Gospel there and we read in Acts 18, verse 8-10 through that the church flourished. The church was established under the Apostle Paul's exposition of the Word. And then, as we read just a moment ago, we see that these first two chapters are largely devoted to the subject of what kind of preaching the Apostle Paul brought to Corinth. You see, what's necessary in order to understand this book is to know that Corinth is only located about 45 miles from the city of Athens. We read about Paul's visit to Athens in Acts 17, just before he came to Corinth. And Athens, as you know, was known as the epicenter of Greek philosophy. In Athens, there was a great love for human wisdom. There was a great love for sitting around and listening to Plato and Socrates debate their views of the modern life. This was their entertainment. Even Corinth had a famous outdoor theater where people would sit around and wanted to listen 
to the rhetorical skills. They wanted to see the powerful displays of rhetoric. And they wanted to be moved. They wanted to be swayed by the debaters. By those with superiority of speech. But look how Paul came to them in verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. And not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. He's making a distinction here that the preaching that causes the church to flourish, the kind of preaching that grows and establishes congregations around the world is not the preaching of Greek philosophers. It's not eloquent wisdom. It's not rhetorical skill that can sway the opinions of our affections. But Paul says it's something else. In chapter 2, verses 1-5, through which we read just a moment ago, he elaborates on this and says he did not come with lofty speech or wisdom. That preaching is not to rely on our rhetoric. Preaching is not based on our appearance in the pulpit. Or even our talents and our abilities. Although I'm sure Paul was talented and had abilities. But Paul says, biblical preaching, God-honoring preaching, is preaching that relies on the power of God. God-honoring preaching is preaching that relies on the power of God. Our catechism picks up on this note when it talks about where does faith come from? Where is the origin of faith? And notice that the first thing it says is it doesn't mention anything about the preacher, but it mentions that the Holy Spirit works it in our hearts. Faith is not produced when someone comes and sits in our pews and is impressed. Or by, when they are swayed by the rhetorical skill of the person speaking. The catechism mentions nothing of the building and grounds or contemporary music or any of the modern growth tactics of churches today. The emphasis is on the Holy Spirit. My friends, I think this is something that we need to be reminded of in the day and age in which we live. Because it can be easy for us to sort of get down on ourselves. Or we can be proud about how our churches are doing. But the Bible teaches us that the success of the Gospel is not dependent upon men. But the conviction of sins 
and the comfort given in Christ, the growth of the church, the success of the church is wholly dependent upon God. And the Scriptures have always taught this. This isn't novel. Remember these famous words from Isaiah 55. God said, My word which goes forth from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose it. And it shall succeed in that for which I sent it. Likewise, Jesus, when He in His ministry on earth said in Matthew 16, verse 18, I will build My church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. God is the one who builds the church. And we this evening need to trust Him. Trust that He will build His church. And even trust this evening right now that He is working in our midst. There's a word of application here that needs to be brought up before we move on. As I mentioned, there's no title in our catechism, but the subject is specifically about the ministry of the church for the next six Lord's Days. The ministry of the church. But if you go online and you Google and read some articles about the popular opinions today of the church and its ministry... Not so good, is it? It's well noted that the Christian church in its ministry does not enjoy good reputation. Polls indicate that North American society uh, uh, has a low regard and does not highly respect or honor the church and her pastors. But you're not surprised by that, are you? What may surprise you is that these polls also reflect that many people who purport to be Christians also have low regard and not much respect for the church and its ministry. Have you experienced this? It has become popular in North America to demonstrate and evidence a strong love and commitment to Jesus but a low commitment and love for Christ's body. The church, in many ways, has become tepid. The relationship, excuse me, of Christians and the church has become tepid at best and in some cases, non-existent. And the most common objection I come across when people have a low view of the church, is that Jesus doesn't call me to be a member of the church. He calls me to be the church. Have you come across this? Or how about this one? I want a relationship with Jesus, not a religion. And in saying these things, We're attempting to throw off the ministry of the church. We expect these sayings to sort of exempt us from worshiping God. Exempt us from seeking membership in the church. 
exempt us from having the oversight of elders. But what does the Bible really say about the ministry of the church? Doesn't it say that Paul went city to city establishing congregations? Acts 16, verse 4. And that as he went to those cities, he ordained elders who were charged with the governing and the oversight of the flock. Doesn't it say in Acts 2, as I even mentioned in my prayer, that they were called to instruct their children in the wonderful works of God? Converts were instructed in Acts 2. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to communion. They devoted themselves to prayer and fellowship. And wasn't the congregation called in Hebrews 10 to worship every Lord's Day? The church in the Bible has always been held up as the God-ordained place to gather and to nourish the people of God in the faith of God. Because this is the place God the Spirit is said to dwell with His people. Do you know this evening that God the Holy Spirit is here in your midst? You right now are in the presence of God the Holy Spirit. And He wants to nourish you. He wants to encourage you. He wants to bless your faith. And the two ways He is said to do that is through, we read in question 65 of our catechism, through the preaching of the Gospel and the Holy Sacraments. We call these theologically the means of grace. The word means means tools, channels. This is the way God instructs us in the Gospel and gives us His grace. Through preaching, and sacraments. Maybe we should ask a simple question this evening. But what is preaching? Seems simple. You're sitting under it even right now. But preaching, the word literally means heralding. Where somebody would go before the king in an Old Testament book and they would proclaim to the people as they were going through the towns, the King is coming. Make straight the way. Prepare yourself. Get ready. The King will be here. That's where we get that word. And it's the God-ordained means. His chosen means to convert sinners and help Christians grow. Through preaching, God strengthens and protects and preserves, preserves His people. But notice how the catechism describes it. It's the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts. 
Sometimes when we think of the work of the Holy Spirit, we only think of the miraculous. We only think of conversion, spectacular singing, healings. But the Catechism is saying that the Holy Spirit works through ordinary things. Like a man standing in front of his congregation with an open Bible. Through an ordinary thing, God is said to save the souls of His people. It is foolishness to the world, but it is salvation to us. Paul mentions this in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That means the same people are hearing the same message. Those who are unconverted and those who are converted. But the Holy Spirit is the one who makes it life to one and condemnation to the other. The Word of the cross, not human wisdom, is effectual unto salvation because of the work of the Holy Spirit. He is the giver of faith. So which kind of church should you go to? Charles Spurgeon said, go to the church that preaches the Gospel and go often. We need to be a people who give ourselves to the preaching of the Word. It is not the preacher's job to entertain. It is not the preacher's job to impress Or tickle the ears. But God's people must come ready and prepared to sit under the preaching of the Word. Let us not be those who go to the church of the wise, of the scribe, of the debater of this age. A church that is based upon the foolishness of this world. But to be the people who want, as Spurgeon said, to receive the Gospel week by week. So how do we get the most out of sermons? I want to encourage you, my friends, to pray before you come to church. Every Saturday night, ask that God would open your hearts and the hearts of your children to receive the Word. Be on time. Go to bed on time the night before. Take notes. Do whatever you have to do to get the most out of this means of grace. Parents, raise your children to be eager for the Word. If our children see us loathing sitting through sermons, wishing we were on the boat, how do we think they will mature in Christ? And more, on a more serious note, it's not that that's not serious, but most Christians would never slander Christ. But we can be quick to slander His bride. If you won't allow your wife to be slandered, 
Don't allow Christ's wife, Christ's bride, to be slandered. We need to love the church. Cherish the church as a God-ordained place where He reveals Himself. Let's look at the focus of faith this evening. Continuing in Paul's words to the Corinthian church, we see that, the, that in Paul's preaching, there was one dominant theme. There was one central truth that stood out to the congregation. That is, there was one thing that filled their worship and there was one thing that filled their message. Verse 23, Christ crucified. The Lord Jesus, Paul says, must have the central place in the ministry of the church. One preacher put it this way. He said, the essence of Christianity is centered upon the Lord Jesus. The sum and substance of being a Christian is trusting in Christ with the entirety of one's being. He says, the height of the Christian life is adoring Christ. The depth of the Christian life is loving Him. The breadth is obeying Him. And the length is following Him. Close quote. The message Paul delivered is that everything in the church and everything in the Christian life is to revolve around Jesus Christ. Notice with me this evening the message of the Apostle Paul this evening. And we don't need to look far. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the Gospel. Verse 18, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are saving, but for us it's the power of God. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified. Chapter 2, verse 2, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Paul's sermons were full of the blood of Jesus. And it didn't matter if the church wanted more Greek philosophy. It didn't matter if they wanted Him to satisfy their itching ears. He had a one-tracked mind. Show these people Jesus. That is captured in that word in chapter 2, verse 2, where he says, I was determined. Or in the ESV, I decided which means to judge in a solemn and a judicial manner. It was a fixed verdict. He was determined to preach nothing but Christ and Him crucified. Now this, of course, doesn't mean that Paul didn't teach the whole counsel of God. We read in Acts 20 that that's exactly what he did. He did preach the whole counsel of God. He would have taught this, his congregations about God's creation about the creation of Adam and Eve, about election, about the last things. But he always did it when it was rooted and grounded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Congregation, learn from this. That any sermon that fails to present some aspect of our Savior's redeeming work has missed the mark. 
Sermons must and always present Christ as the Savior. Isn't that what the Catechism says? The Word and the sacraments are intended to focus us on the sacrifices of Jesus on the cross as the only grounds of our salvation. To quote Spurgeon again, he says a sermon without Christ is like a day without the sun. It's like a cloud without rain. It's like a well with no water. It's like bread without yeast. In some, there's no life there. What Paul is teaching us is that the kind of church God blesses, the kind of preaching God blesses, is the church, is the preaching that is set upon the Lord Jesus. Contrary to popular belief, that the best church is a big church. And we tend to think God blesses the successful church or the charismatic pastor. But last week when I was in Rock Valley, Iowa giving the charge to Reverend Caleb Castro, I sought to remind him that on the last day when we stand before God, We will be judged not based on how successful we were, but were you faithful to the Gospel? Paul says the focus of our faith, the focus of our whole church, is to be on Christ. And his job as the pastor was to point them to Christ in his sermons. His job in the sacraments was to point the people to Christ. Can I have a word this evening with the young men and the boys who may be here? Is God calling you to give your life to the ministry in a special way? Now, this isn't just for young men and young boys because we're all called to serve Christ. We're all called to magnify Him and point our friends and families to Him. But there's a special way God calls some people to serve Him in the office of the ministry. It doesn't matter if you're three this evening. Is the Lord working in your heart? Do you desire to tell people about Jesus. If so, you need to pray that the Spirit would make your heart ready. Pray for that desire to grow. Talk to me. Talk to your elders. And allow that to grow and to consume you until you say with Paul, woe is me unless I preach the Gospel. To the world, if God calls you to preach, if God calls you to sit and listen to preaching and to receive the sacraments, you will be seen as foolish and weak. We are counted as fools for giving our lives to the Gospel promise. In fact, in order to illustrate this, I want to show you one thing. That word foolish 
from the Greek, moros is where we get the word moron. To the world, we are idiotic, unintelligent. To the Jews, it was a stumbling block. They couldn't believe in a crucified Messiah. To the Greeks, it was folly. To the world, Jesus is a failure. But in the Spirit, He is our Savior. The Spirit gives the message life. In the Word and Sacrament, by the blessing of the Spirit, we can see the Gospel. In baptism, we see the good news of His incarnation. His death and resurrection. In preaching, we're reminded of His wondrous love and how He exchanged places with us. In the Lord's Supper, we see that He came from heaven to earth so that we could go from earth to heaven. We see that He who is rich became poor so that we could become rich. He became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. God chooses the foolish things, the weak things, to show us the Gospel promise. John Calvin eloquently put it this way, you can only have God as your Father if you have the church as your mother. This is how God is made known through the preaching of the Word and the sacraments. We cannot, as we've learned from the book of Romans, deduce from creation how to get to heaven. We cannot even learn from our families, as wonderful as they are, how to get, the, how to, get to heaven, the good news of the Gospel, unless they open the Word and they bring us to church. This is the place of salvation. This is the day of salvation. O Lord of hosts, how lovely Your tabernacle is. And finally, and very quickly, let's notice third, the signs of faith. We won't spend too much time on it since the next five Lord's Days will be about the sacraments, but what needs to be brought to our attention is something very profound in question 68. How many sacraments did Christ institute in the New Testament? Two. Baptism and the Holy Supper. When this catechism was written in 1563, do you realize how controversial of a statement this is? Only two sacraments? When the Roman Catholics teach that there are no less than seven sacraments... They teach baptism, confirmation, Eucharist, confession, anointing of the sick, matrimony, and holy orders are all sacraments. Even when I was a little boy, I remember the church I went to called a pastor from a denomination which said that there were three sacraments. Baptism, Lord's Supper, and foot washing. And we give thanks that that's not a sacrament.
But the Catechism is drawing to our attention here that there is a criteria for what is and is not a sacrament. And it says in question 66 that the sacraments are visible and holy signs and seals. What is a sacrament, a New Testament sacrament, is that which is instituted by Christ. That which is visible to our eyes, the waters of baptism and the bread and wine of the Lord's Supper, needs to be physical. And they need to point us to Jesus and our perpetual things that we do until He comes. We say that every time we take the Lord's Supper, we'll receive it until He comes. We'll receive it until He comes. It needs to be instituted by Christ. Something visible that points to something spiritual. And it's a perpetual ordinance. And here's the point of it all. They are for you. Jesus gave the sacraments for you. So that your faith could be strengthened. So that when you feel weak and heavy laden with sin, and burdened by the trials of this world, you can come to the table and you can receive the confirmation and affirmation, Jesus loves me. He loves me so much that He would die for me. And we hear that every time we come to church and we hear the word proclaimed, He does love me so. pastor read the Bible and he reminded me that Jesus loves me. There's one application that I'd like to make before we conclude this evening. Why do we come to church twice on Sunday? You've probably been asked this question. Maybe your kids ask you this question. We come to church twice for the strengthening of our faith. Because here the means of grace are given to us. Not just once, but twice. Two times, a double blessing, we are able to come into the presence of God and worship Him, hear the Word read and proclaimed, and receive the sacraments. I like to jokingly say when people ask me, why do we go to church twice? Usually in catechism class, requesting that we don't, say, why not three? There's no better place to be than in the tabernacle of God where we can worship Him and be encouraged in our faith. And so, congregation, the Holy Spirit uses the weak and the foolish things according to the world, and by His Holy Spirit, He comes alongside them and applies them to our hearts. And through these simple things, He unites us more and more to the person of Jesus, so that wherever we go from this place, we have that confirmation and affirmation. Jesus loves me. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we do give You thanks that You have given us faith. You are the giver of faith by the power of Your Holy Spirit. And that You have given us these things which to the world are weak and foolish, in order to focus our faith upon You. Father, we thank You 
for the means of grace, the preaching of the Word, baptism in the Lord's Supper, and how good it is for our souls, even when our flesh is tired, and even when others may ridicule us, it enlivens us, it strengthens us, it encourages us. And so, Father, we pray as we embark in these next five weeks upon the study of the holy sacraments from Your Catechism, we ask, God, that Your Spirit would be among us, that You would further instruct us in the teachings of these things, that we might embrace the sacraments more fully as a result of having studied this. I pray, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here, encourage them by the preaching of the Word even this evening, that, Lord, the Gospel promise is theirs in Christ. This we receive with grateful hearts. In Jesus' name, Amen.